school is kicking off, and it's good to see old faces and new ones, and look forward to meeting you if I haven't already. Um, but I want to just kind of, by way of introduction, tell you a little bit about what we do at RUF. Every week at RUF, we uh, open up the Bible and look at it. So that's what we're getting ready to do right now. But one of the reasons that we do this is because we believe that the Bible is really the primary way that you get to know God. And, th- and the Bible is also the primary means that God uses to change you. So we take it seriously here. And uh, in addition to that, we, we don't just uh, look at random topics each week in RUF. We usually work through some sort of series or we work through some uh, book of the Bible. One of the reasons that we do this is so that you don't just get to hear me talk about whatever I want to talk about. I don't just get to ride my soapbox issues, but we actually look at what the Bible says. And one of the uh, things, one of the implications of that is that you kind of get a, the Bible in sort of the good, the bad, and the ugly. You can't avoid the hard parts of the Bible when we, uh, when we look through it like this. You, you, you can't avoid the hard passages. So... This semester, we are going to begin exploring the book of Deuteronomy. Before you even fall asleep at just me mentioning that, uh, I want to give a brief defense for why in the world we're going to do this this semester. Because, I mean, let's be honest. When was the last time you said to yourself, I want to read the book of Deuteronomy? I think I'm going to have my quiet time in that this morning. You know, I mean, we just, let's just be honest and admit up front that it is a weird book. <laughs> and it's weird for a reason. I mean, it, you don't gravitate towards reading it for a reason. It's obscure, it's challenging, there's a lot of weird stuff in it. Uh, but here's my little brief defense for why we're going to do this this semester. Point number one. Historically, the book of Deuteronomy has had like, incredible impact and relevance. Later on in the Bible, there's this story in Second Chronicles where the, the nation of Israel is just steeped in idolatry. They've totally rebelled against God. They don't care about him. And, and so as a result, the nation's just totally disintegrating. One of the priests at the time finds this random book in the temple and gives it to the king. The king reads it, is changed by it, begins reading it to the other leaders of Israel, and revival happens. Cultural and spiritual revolution takes place. They get rid of all the idols and they begin returning to God again. What was this weird random book that they found? The book of Deuteronomy. Point number two. Jesus, you may remember his temptation in the wilderness. You can read about this in Matthew 4. Satan is tempting him and he comes to him with three different challenges trying to derail Jesus' mission, right? And what does Jesus do each time? Three times he quotes scripture to him from the Old Testament. What book does he quote those three times? The book of Deuteronomy. <laughs> there you go. You wouldn't think to run to Deuteronomy for spiritual warfare, but Jesus thought it was okay. So there you go. Point number two. Point number three. <laughs> In 1741, <laughs> just sounds ridiculous even setting it up like that. <laughs> there you go. Well, to be exact, July 8th, 1741, the North American famous theologian Jonathan Edwards gave a famous sermon. Some of y'all may think it's infamous sermon. Of y'all may have looked at it in literature classes, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Remember this? This was based off of Deuteronomy chapter 32. And that sermon, in addition to a lot of other things, helped catalyze the North American Great Awakening, which was this huge revival that took place in this country. Every aspect of this culture was rearranged. 
And so my point that I'm trying to make is every culture, every society that took this book seriously was transformed by it. But point number four, and probably the most important reason for why we're going to look at it this semester, is because the book of Deuteronomy is God's word. In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching and correcting and rebuking and training in righteousness, right? This means even the weird, obscure parts of the Bible are God's word. And so we really do believe that at RUF. And so we're going to look at it. As weird and as confusing as it's going to be, uh, it's going to be good. And we believe that because God inspired it, it has profound relevance for your life and for my life. So with all that said, my brief um, defense for why we're doing this, let me draw your attention to the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 1. This is God's word. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tophel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Disahab. It takes 11 days to go from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea and the Mount Seir Road. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. This was after he had defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, who reigned in Heshbon. And then Edrei had defeated Og, king of Bashan, who reigned in Ashtaroth. East of the Jordan, in the territory of Moab, Moses began to expound this law, saying, The Lord our God said to us at Horeb, You have stayed long enough at this mountain. Break camp and advance into the hill country of the Amorites. Go to all the neighboring peoples in the Arabah, in the mountains, in the western foothills, in the Negev, and along the coast, to the land of the Canaanites, and to Lebanon, as far as the great river, the Euphrates. See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. This is God's word. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, even pronouncing some of these words is is hard and challenging. And so we know to understand what this means, we have no hope of learning what this is apart from your help. And so we ask, would you come and would you help us? Would you open up our eyes and unclog our ears and soften our hearts that we would be able to behold the message of your word and be able to see the gospel again and see it as good news? And Father, while we're praying, uh, I want to pray for uh, Haiti and just for the folks that have experienced everything over there and the horrific loss and the horrific tragedy and everything that's going on. I pray for your kindness and for your mercy to come and to comfort those people, that the Lord Jesus would be beautiful to those people, that you would send help, that you would send your church to come and to help those in need. We ask for your kindness on them and and for your kindness on us, even right now as we look at this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so um, three quick questions that I want to ask and then answer from this passage. What is Deuteronomy about? Why is what it's about relevant? And how do we get to be a part of what it's about? So in other words, what is it about? Why is it relevant? How do we get to be a part of what it's about? So... You could say, first of all, what is Deuteronomy about? You could say a lot of things here, but 
I think there's sort of two basic themes that emerge from this book. One is in the foreground, one is in the background. One is a, a lot more explicit and one is a lot more implicit. So these are, the one that's in the foreground, the one that's up front is the theme of covenant. The one in the background, the one sort of the baseline underneath everything is the theme of kingdom. So covenant and kingdom is sort of the, the two basic things that this book is about. We're going to look at one tonight and one next week. So tonight we're looking at the kingdom, the kingdom of God. If you've been around Christian circles enough, you have probably heard this expression and then probably thought to yourself, what in the world is that? What do we mean when we say the kingdom of God? It is such a loaded and, and huge concept in the Bible that I, I want to try and break it down in three ways. One, by giving you the, the definition, then telling you the story of the kingdom, and then giving you some, some modern examples so you know, have a little bit more flesh on, on what I'm talking about. So here's the definition of what we mean by the kingdom of God. Here it is. The kingdom of God is the numerical and geographical expansion of God's rule on this planet. I'll say it again. <laughs> the, new, God, the kingdom of God is the numerical and geographical expansion of God's rule on this planet. I know some of you are thinking, that is incredibly not helpful whatsoever. <laughs> so, for the more literary-minded, let me just tell you the story of the kingdom now. You go back to the beginning, Genesis 1. God creates the world, right, and places Adam and Eve in a garden, in a magnificent, beautiful world, a, a, a garden, right? And it is fit for a king, a, a king. It is a kingdom of peace and a kingdom of shalom and a kingdom of justice and a kingdom of love where God is with his people and they are dwelling together and it is glorious and magnificent. And God says to, Abraham, to Adam and Eve, take this kingdom and, and multiply it and spread it to the ends of the earth. Take this little kingdom here, this garden, and, and expand it to the ends of the earth. Right? This is called the cultural mandate. This is, uh, you know, you think about it like this. God set up the world basically like a, uh, like a pencil sketch done by an artist. He has sort of established the basic outlines and the patterns and everything's in place. But the one spot that he painted with magnificent colors was this garden called Eden. And it was the kingdom. It was the kingdom of God where he dwelled, where his presence was. And he says to Adam and Eve, take this kingdom and fill it, expand it to the rest of the planet here. So this is what the kingdom of God begins. And what does Adam and Eve do? What, what do they do? They rebel against this claim and they rebel against this king. And they say, we don't care about this. And as they do that, they rebel and they usher in, instead of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of selfishness and the kingdom of sin, and the kingdom of brokenness. This is the world that we woke up in this morning, right? So what does God do? He kicks them out of the garden, and the kingdom of God collapses, and the kingdom of self and of sin is established. But God does not give up on his agenda for the world. So years later, he says to Abraham, I want you to go back to that same exact spot, the land of Eden, which at this point is now called the land of Canaan. And he says, I want you to start the kingdom of God over. Get there and rebuild it and expand it. So he does, begins. Years later, his family prefers sexual screw-up stuff and uh, greed and deception. And the kingdom of God begins to collapse. And the people of God find themselves in Egypt and slavery and bondage. 
And so God brings another character on the scene, Moses, right? And he says, Moses, go back to that spot, that geographical spot called the Garden of Eden, which is now called the land of Canaan, and restart this thing called the kingdom of God. If you've been to our house, you have played rock band (laughs) because that is what we do at our house now. We have the Xbox, and when y'all aren't around, Catherine and I are by ourselves playing, and if you've been to our house, you've played too. But if you're playing a song and you fail miserably, it gives you the option of restarting, right? But you don't restart in the spot that you failed in. You go back to the very beginning of the song, right? And this is basically what the kingdom of God is doing. God is saying, we're going to start the kingdom right here in this geographical spot. And Adam and Eve failed, so he brings Abraham back to that same spot. Abraham and his family failed, so he brings Moses back to that same spot. But, let me rewind a little bit. Moses and the people of Israel, liberated from Egypt, they go through the wilderness for 40 years, like this, and (laughs) right when they get to the brink of the promised land, This is kind of where the story stops and we're into the present because the book of Deuteronomy is a series of sermons that Moses gives to the people of Israel right as they are on the threshold of getting back into the land. Okay, It is a series of sermons that he is proclaiming and and rehearsing and and it's before they go back in to take the kingdom, that spot back and use that as the launching pad to fill the rest of the earth. Okay, you follow me? This is the basic context for this whole book. Let me try and show it to you from the actual passage. So here we go. Verse 1. These are the words Moses spoke to all Israel in the desert east of the Jordan, that is in the Arabah, opposite Suf, between Paran and Tafel, Laban, Hazaroth, and Disahab. Now don't get bogged down in all that weird geography, but you see that the thing that is basically saying when it says, these are the words Moses spoke, this is just saying the rest of this book, these are the words. This is Moses' speech. This is his sermon. And where are they? They are in the desert east of the Jordan. So if you're looking at the map, promised land here, Jordan River here, here's the people of Israel. The Jordan River is the, is the obstacle separating them from moving into the land. Okay? So they're ready to move in. Verse 3. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses proclaimed to the Israelites all that the Lord had commanded him concerning them. So, 40 years. We're at the end of 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. They're on the banks of the Jordan River. And then verses 4 through 7 is is basically just a recap of everything that happened in the wilderness. They defeated some kings. God was really awesome and gracious. And here we are right on the threshold. And what is the next step? Verse 8, See, I have given you this land. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore he would give to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants after them. So here's the basic point in all that. The nation of Israel is liberated from bondage and slavery in Egypt to go back to the land of Canaan, the Garden of Eden, and, and take it for the kingdom and use that as a launching pad to bring the kingdom to the rest of the planet. Let me even make it more simplified if I can. God saves his people not to escape this world, but to enter into it. God saves Israel out of Egypt, not to huddle in the corner and feel good about themselves, but to actually move into the world. 
And this is the same way for you and for me. God does not save us from our slavery, from our bondage of sin and and selfishness and death and decay so that we can sit in the corner and feel good about ourselves because we are forgiven. No, he pushes us out into the world to do something and to bring the kingdom of peace and of love and of justice to this hurting world and to this hurting campus. God has a vision for this planet. And he wants to see earth mirror heaven itself, where God's rule is not rebelled against, but is actually submitted to. And as a result, communities are in harmony with one another. Neighbors are loving neighbors. Things are fixed and things are operating rightly and, and, and everything is filled with love and with peace because this is the world that we were made for. And if you are a Christian, this is the world that you were saved for. So that's the story. Let me give you a couple just modern examples to, to put a little texture on what I'm talking about. When Catherine and I did uh, youth ministry in Charlotte a couple years ago, we came, this one kid came through our ministry who was the most socially awkward kid you have ever met. And that is not an exaggeration. Like it was pulling teeth to get this guy to talk about his day, how he was feeling. Uh, we didn't realize at the time, but he, was, he had so much social anxiety that he was literally debilitated to talk to anybody. There was so much turmoil going on in him. And we didn't know the whole extent of his story, but we got a call one day that he had threatened to commit suicide at his, fa- at his house. So he was, you know, protocol is that you are hospitalized for that. So he was hospitalized for about a week. We would go up and visit him and just talk with him. And s- somewhere at the course of that week, he became a Christian. He-, he bowed his knee to King Jesus. And it was incredible. There are a lot of conversion stories that, you know, are, are, are natural and normal. But for this kid, it was catastrophic because he was a completely different person. He would stand up in front of our youth groups and, and like dance and sing and entertain the group. And you're like, who is this? This is not the same person. He would get up and share his story about how God had rescued him from the shipwreck of his life. What happened to this kid? The kingdom of God came into his life. Another example. We were in Charlotte, obviously, a couple years ago, working, and uh, Catherine worked in uh, Bank of America, big corporate, uh, the big corporate building downtown. And she would, she would have access to all of the emails for, of her boss, of her superior. And uh, basically her job was you know, to get all the email coming in, and one of the things that she would do is kind of help him organize his schedule. And as she's getting these emails, she begins to notice that there's this conversation going on between this man and this woman who is not his wife. And she begins to put the pieces together in all the emails, and it pieces together that this guy is having an affair with this woman. And she is the only person in the planet that knows about it, that has access to it, because she's reading these emails. His wife would never know about it. So what did Catherine do? She risked her job by going to her superior, to her boss, and saying, I know what's going on here, and it's not okay. She risked her job for the sake of a woman that she didn't know. She stood up for somebody that, that, would, that had nobody to stand up for her. What is that an example of? That is an example of the kingdom coming to this earth of justice happening, of somebody standing up in love and saying, I will take the hit, I will take the risk for somebody else. And maybe even after all of that, you're sitting there and saying, okay, I don't understand all those, the weird Bible stories. I don't know what you're talking about with this weird bizarro kingdom coming to earth. What does this have to do with me? I'm just trying to get through, jo- I'm trying to get through school and get a job. 
What is the relevance of all this? So here's the second question. Why is the kingdom of God relevant? And I want to speak to two different groups of people tonight. First, for those of you who identify yourselves as Christians, and and then secondly, for those of you who don't self-consciously identify yourselves as Christians. So first to the Christians. The relevance of the kingdom of God is because this is what you were liberated for, to help bring the kingdom of love and of peace here, just like the people of Israel. I mean, just think about it. If you've ever spent a summer like working at a camp, you know, serving and taking care of kids or doing a mission trip or some sort of service project, you know how you feel when you come back from those summers or those breaks where you feel great about it? You feel like it was an awesome summer where you expended yourself for somebody else and it was still awesome? It's because you are going with the flow of God's heart. You are going with the flow of what you were created to be and to do. Now, what happens when you spend an entire day, or maybe for some of you, an entire break of, of watching television and playing video games and not talking to anybody? You know how you feel just after a few hours of that where you just feel kind of bored and like saturated and, and depressed? It's because you are not liberated by Jesus to sit on your hands. You are liberated to move into this world. So what does that mean? A couple of tangible things here. At a very simple, fundamental level, the first thing that it means is that you can say, Hello to somebody new tonight here in this room. Introduce yourself to somebody that you don't know. Because what you are doing is that in that moment, you are, you are taking the social risk of moving towards somebody and saying, okay, this may be awkward, but I'm going I'm to take the brunt of it so that somebody who may not feel like they're welcomed or cared for in this group will feel that way. Something easy that you can do to help bring the kingdom into this little room. Here's another one. You know how your roommate drove you crazy all last semester and you built up all that resentment because they didn't do their dishes or they kept their light on while, they were, while you were trying to, stud, or, or trying to sleep or their boyfriend and their girlfriend was in the room all the time or just because they were just totally weird. You remember that? And how you built up all of this resentment all over the break and all over last semester. You remember how you were too cowardly to say anything to them about it? And then all over the break, you, built, you, know, you totally forgot about it and now, first week back, It's all coming back. The resentment is here. There's my roommate. You know what you can do? You can forgive them. And you can invite them out to dinner and move towards talking through some of your issues and trying to rectify the situation. You can bring the kingdom of peace and of love into your little dorm room. You can do that. You can. Here's another thing. You want one more thing? Find out how you can tangibly begin caring for the sick and the needy in the community of poverty here in Boone and in the surrounding area. You know one of the reasons non-Christians look at us Christians and think that what we believe is stupid and irrelevant is because they don't see what we believe making any impact in our life whatsoever. Here's a quote that Roger Greenway, who's an author and a, and a um, uh, missionary, says. He says, The indifference on the part of outsiders to Christianity is simply a reflection of the indifference of Christians towards people and their needs. You see what he's basically saying? The reason the people don't care about what you believe is because they see you not caring about them. Non-Christians want to see whole communities fixed and this world made right. And Christians, you have the power to do it. You are an heir of the kingdom. We have the power to do it. So this is how the kingdom of God is relevant to you who identify yourselves as Christians. But what about the non-Christians? How is any of this relevant for you? It is relevant for you because this, what I'm talking about is what you really want. This is what you really long for. You really want the poor fed. 
You do really want the sick healed. And you want injustices rectified and meaning and purpose in your life. And you want your guilt forgiven. And you want to feel accepted for who you are. This is what you want. Underneath it all, you want the kingdom of God. And the the storyline of your life will not find resolution until it ends in the kingdom of God. I read this uh, fascinating article yesterday on CNN, uh, CNN CNN.com. It's about the movie Avatar. New movie, I'm sure many of y'all have seen it. There is this unbelievable phenomenon that is occurring. Loads of people are experiencing intense depression after seeing this film. Have you, have you heard about this? Have you read the, or maybe you've read the article. I mean, if you've seen the movie, it's incredible. There's this, it's, it paints this picture of this unbelievable, beautiful, utopian planet called Pandora. And so here are some of the things, here are some of the you know, things that people have typed in on these internet forums. One guy says this, Ever since I went to see Avatar, I have been depressed. Watching the wonderful world of Pandora and all the Navi, those are the big blue things, made me, <laughs> made me want to be one of them. I can't stop thinking about all the things that happened in the film and all of the tears and shivers I got from it. I even contemplate suicide, thinking that if I do it, I will be rebirthed in a world similar to Pandora and that everything is the same as an Avatar. Here's another one. When I woke up this morning after watching Avatar for the first time yesterday, the world seemed gray. It was like my whole life, everything I've done and worked for lost its meaning. It just seemed so meaningless. I still don't really see any reason to keep doing things at all. I live in a dying world. Thousands of people are writing these comments after seeing this movie. People are watching this film and they are seeing a planet, a kingdom of connectionalism and of peace and of love, and of insurpassable beauty, and they think they don't have access to it. And one of the reasons why this film is on its way to being the highest grossing films of all time, which it is moving in that direction, is because this is what everybody wants. The world that it pictures is what you want. And the reason you want it is because this is what you were created for. A kingdom of peace and of love where people do fit together, where it does all make sense, and where love does reign supremely. So here's the question. How do you get in on this? How do you get to be a part of it? Well, that's our last question. Let me answer it by telling you how the book of Deuteronomy ends and and how the rest of the story of the kingdom goes. Because here is the people of Israel right on the threshold of moving into the promised land. And Moses has given this sermon. After he finishes, they move in and they do take the land back. And they establish a kingdom. They establish a monarchy. This is where you get King David and Solomon and all those Old Testament Bible guys from. But what happens over time? The people of Israel rebel. They say, we don't like this kingdom anymore. We want the kingdom of self. We want the kingdom of sin. We want to do it our way. And as a result, after years and years and years of this, what does God do? He kicks them out of the land again. He kicks them out. And so all throughout the Old Testament, all of the dreams and the the hopes are dashed. And there is this longing. There is this yearning for somebody who is going to come and who is going to establish the kingdom with permanence. And who is that? Years later, the same exact spot, Jesus shows up, the promised land, the land of Canaan, which is now called the land of Israel. And what is the first thing he says as he begins his public ministry? Mark chapter 1. The time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. I have come to bring the kingdom and to establish its certainty. And so what does he do? Jesus lives the most extraordinary life any human has ever lived. 
What does he do? He devotes, he, he devotes his entire life to caring for the poor and to feeding the hungry and to forgiving the guilty and to healing the sick and to teaching the truth and to standing up for those who don't have anyone to stand up for them. And then what does he do? After he lives a life of perfection, he dies the most barbaric death on a cross, dying in the place of people who have been perpetuating the kingdom of self. He dies for his enemies because he dies in the place of his enemies. And then after three days, what does God do? He raises him from the dead as a way of validating and vindicating everything that he has done. And so with Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the kingdom of God is established and it is inaugurated and it is made certain. Remember the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe? Remember how there is this, the, the evil which has cast the spell over the land of Narnia, where it's, um, uh, what is it, always winter and never Christmas? You remember this? Just snow everywhere, dreary, cold, kind of like here, you know? (laughs) Spell cast over here, gloomy, terrible. And uh, what happens? Aslan shows up. And when he shows up, the spell begins to break, right? Ice begins to melt. Snow begins to give way to green grass. Warmth begins to get restored to the land of Narnia. The gray and the frigid and the dreary and the gloomy winter gives way to warmth and to beauty and to color and to flowers blooming. When Aslan shows up, the, the spell is broken. It's the same way. When Jesus shows up, the spell of sin and the kingdom of self is broken. And Jesus establishes the kingdom of God. And so how do we get to be a part of it? Well, he tells us in Matthew 5, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit get to be a part of this thing called the kingdom. Which, of course, raises the question, what does that mean? Poor in spirit. It means to be spiritually impoverished. Spiritually bankrupt. It, it, it describes somebody who is empty. Somebody who has nothing. It describes somebody who would identify themselves in this way. God, I don't have any moral track record here. I don't have any goodness in me. I don't have any uh, spiritual resources that I can put in front of you and say, this is why I'm good, this is why I'm special. It it, it describes somebody who says, I've got nothing. I I come to you with empty hands, and all I can do is beg for your mercy and cling to this person called Jesus because he's the only one that I have. It describes somebody who is poor in spirit. And if this is you... If you have given up on yourself and you come to the table here with nothing in your hands but simply holding on to Jesus, then Jesus tells you, you have the kingdom. You are in the kingdom. It is for you and it will be for you. Those who are uh, poor and weak and needy come to the kingdom. And what does he say at the end of that book? Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And that authority that he's talking about is kingly authority, which means... Okay, how do I know he's telling the truth? How do I know that I get to be a part of this kingdom? Because the only one who could say it has said it. If you are poor and weak and needy and spiritually bankrupt, yours is the kingdom. But then what does he say right after that? Matthew 28. Now take this kingdom and spread it to the ends of the earth. Bring love and peace and justice everywhere you go, into your dorm room and onto this campus and into your job in the future. Bring the kingdom there. The poor and the needy and the messed up people, the people like you and me who have wrecked our lives, 
These are the people that Jesus chooses to be instruments of peace and of love into this world and onto this campus, which means he takes broken and messed up people to be agents of love and of healing to other broken and messed up people. And we can do it. We really can do it. Not because we are strong, but because he is strong. Right? So this is what Deuteronomy is about. And if you stick around this semester, you will see that Deuteronomy is a massive, comprehensive blueprint on how to bring the kingdom to this earth as it is in heaven. But you have to know that you cannot be an agent of this kingdom. You cannot bring the kingdom of peace and of love to this planet unless you have first come to the king. And the way to come into the king is the way of emptiness. And for those who come to him with nothing, he promises to give you everything. And that is good news. Let me pray for us. Father, we um, hear about this um, kingdom and this agenda that you have for the world. And uh, it's kind of overwhelming sometimes, but it's beautiful and it grabs our hearts and we want to be a part of it. We want to see even this campus transform so that you are ruling and people are submitting to you and they are healed and they are forgiven and there is love and there is peace and there is justice because you are a good king. I pray that would you, would you give us the grace, would you give us the kindness to bow the knee if we haven't. And if we have, I pray that you give us the strength and the ability to bring this kingdom of love and of peace to this campus, and to our dorm room, and to our classes, and to our life, and to this world. Would you be so kind to do this? Because uh, you deserve it. You deserve the glory. And uh, we are grateful that you have chosen us, broke and needy, and hurting and wounded people, to be agents of this glorious task that you have for us. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.